So other than being a pastor, one of the things that I really absolutely love doing is building guitars. Um, some of you know it, some of you don't, um, but I make electric guitars and I, I'm not a pro by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm pretty good. I've made, I've got guitars all over the country, um, and, uh, which is weird, but kind of neat at the same time. Um, so when I see other luthiers work, I, I just, I love to see what they do. You know, if you're a craftsperson, if you're a craftsman and you see other people's work in that area, you can't help, but like, how did they, how did they do this? How did they approach that? What did they do here? What did they do there? And you kind of nerd out on, on, you know, the details that nobody else cares about, um, and so one of the top acoustic guitar makers in the world is a company called McPherson. Um, you don't see a lot of their guitars because they make very few a year. I think they make around 120 or so a year. Um, they, it's, they're, they're very, very carefully crafted instruments. Um, and they're also really expensive. If anyone's looking for a Christmas present for me, there's a good idea right there. Um, yeah, anyway. So... Your appreciation for something like this comes down to one really specific thing, your knowledge of it, your knowledge of it. And there's different levels of understanding when you're looking at something that was crafted so well. You know, if you're an outside, you're someone on the outside looking in, you're not a player. You might look at this and go, what's pretty? Oh, I like the grain of the wood. Oh, that's neat. You might even be surprised at how much someone is willing to fork out for one of these. This guitar, I believe, is somewhere around thirteen or 14000 Okay? So, so like I said, anyone looking for a good... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, moving right along. So, but if you're an average guitar player, just an average guitar, like you own a guitar... You know, and you strum it every now and then. It's kind of neat. These are really cool instruments. You look at it and go, wow, that's really neat. I would never pay that much for that. Now, now pay attention. I would never pay that much for that because I can get a cheaper version. Hang on to that thought as we finish through the rest of our, our message today because it's important. If you're an average player, you own it, but you've never put in the time to develop a skill for it. You're not going to pay the price to get something of that quality because you don't value it for what it actually is. Now, if you're an above average or skilled player, this is not just an instrument to you. This is, oh, wow. This is just, just amazing. You would, you would love to own one of these. You'd sell a sibling to, to get one of these. Some of you are thinking, I would sell them for a lot less. <laughs> and the reason most serious players would value something like this is because they have a basic understanding of what goes into this thing. They understand how tuned it is, how, 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 uh, uh, how much care goes into the selection of the wood. This, this thing is handmade. This isn't factory produced. You know, there's so much time. There's between six and seven months on an average McPherson guitar. Some of them can go as long as a year from start to beginning of it being made. Depending on what they got to do for it. So you have an appreciation for what is what this thing is. And because you value it, you'll hand over the money for it. You'll pay the price 
for something of that kind of quality. But there's another group of people, those who build. To those who build, the sound this guitar produces is almost irrelevant because we know the sound has more to do with the player than anything else. You can put a beautiful instrument in the hands of a horrible player and it's going to sound not great. Okay? And a lot of times you can put an okay instrument in the hands of an amazing player and they'll make it, they'll make it sing. So there's a different level of appreciation in the hands of those who build. I want to share some of this a little bit with you. So with these particular guitars, some of the things that builders geek out on is stuff like this. I, I know you're going, I don't even know what I'm looking at. That's the neck joint. The neck joint, the fretboard doesn't sit on the body of the guitar. It's cantilevered. And that's to give it more sustain, easier playability, and it's easier to repair because you're not, the glue's not glued to the, to the top of the guitar. But that thing has to hold the pressure of all the strings pulling back without moving. That's really cool. That's some serious construction. They put a lot of thought into this. And the tolerances when you're building are next to nothing. Like you, you can't make a mistake or it doesn't work. When you get into the inside of the guitar, the picture on, uh, on your left, that's the inside body of the guitar. Those are called bracings. That's what keeps the guitar from folding in on itself and breaking. They use a laminate bracing structure. Almost nobody else does this because this is incredibly time-consuming. And then you see how the, the two pieces go over and under? No one does that because of how long it takes. They want to produce these things and get them out the door. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want a guitar that will never have to come back to a, to a repair person. This is going to last forever. And they do. They're amazing instruments. But the other really cool part, this is the inside of the neck over here on your, uh, on your right. That's a neck cut in half. Now, normally there's a, a metal bar that runs down the length of the neck, and you can, you can, you can tighten it and loosen it, and it'll make the neck bow or, or it'll move to counteract the tension of the strings. And that's how you get a flat neck. They don't have one. They take a solid piece of mahogany and then they route out the entire inside to one eighth of an inch and then they inlay a solid piece of carbon fiber through the entire neck. That is a gigantic piece of carbon fiber. That neck will never move. It will survive a nuclear blast. That neck is never going anywhere. And that wood is not just wrapped around it. That's a solid chunk of mahogany. That chunk of mahogany is an inch and a half thick and three inches wide when it starts. I told you, I'm a geek. Nerd and proud. Right, Mark? <laughs> All depends on the subject matter, doesn't it? <laughs> but what really sets them apart is their, the detail they put into their inlay work. This was a guitar commissioned, I think, for their 25th anniversary uh, by the owner of the company. He likes tall ships, nautical designs, and things like that. So the inlay work, if you're just looking at this guitar, this is what I'm talking, this is the difference between someone on the outside and someone who's paying attention to details. This is the bridge of the guitar. This bridge is about an inch and a half tall and about seven inches wide. You take a look at it. If you look 
here, 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 and here. Those are sailing ships carved into the top of that. Now, if you actually look at, let's see, there's a line that goes through here, and you see these lines here? Those are the pieces of fossilized woolly mammoth tusk that this is made out of. I didn't even know you could get that. They put these things together by hand to the point where you can't even, you can barely see the joint and the grain on the tusk is matched so that it looks like old paper. Then they build this thing and they send it out to a guy who does what's called scrimshaw. If you don't know what scrimshaw is, it's engraving done with a dental drill. So all of these little ships, all these little chubby cherubs on the side, this is actually a nautical map inlaid into the top of this design. That is so cool. This thing's only seven inches wide. And that's not even the coolest part. That's the headstock. They did the same thing. That's covered in woolly mammoth uh, tusk. And all of that is scrimshawed into the top of it. You can't do this until it's already on the guitar. So they send the neck of the guitar to the guy and hope it all works out. He had this for months, putting this together with little magnifying glasses going, and you probably don't notice it from where you are, but this is a pirate ship. And if you look up here, there's a Jolly Roger on that flag, skull and crossbones. It's actually there. Now, I'm pointing that out for a reason. We'll get to that reason in a minute. But when you get into the inlay down the neck of the guitar, this is how it starts. It's that same ship sailing off into the sunset. And if you put this under magnification, I want you to understand this inlay is less than an inch tall and less than two inches wide. The Jolly Roger is on that flag. If you get it under a microscope, it's on that flag. And the coolest part is, as you go down the neck, the ship gets farther away into the sunset until it's only the mast over the horizon. That is so cool. You guys are like, you are a nerd. That's the difference between a casual observer the average player, even a serious player, and someone who builds. Someone who builds understands the value of the time that goes into these things. I meet more and more builders, craftsmen, who don't build anymore, they don't sell anymore, because no one values the work that they do. It happens all the time. I used to make this stuff, but I I couldn't sell it for what it was worth. It's because people don't value it. We want the fast thing from China. We want the easy, quick solution. Not that, that thing that has tremendous work put into it. But then there's other things that we have in our lives that we want the, we want the overpriced, handmade thing. For a lot of you guys in here, there are probably uh, uh, rifles. You know, you're picky about the wood, the, where the metal comes from. You only want to use certain types of... You're, you're so really, really picky about this stuff. 
Because you want to make sure when that hunk of lead goes through that deer, it's quality. <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah. You want that deer to appreciate the fact that it is now dinner for several nights. We all have these things that we want to put way more time in. And I, I show you this stuff to illustrate a point that your level of understanding on something is directly related to the knowledge and experience you have around that topic. Your level of understanding on something is directly related to the level of knowledge and experience you have on that topic. Now, I was sent a video uh, a couple days ago that I thought matched the message today really, really well, and I stole a quote from it. And this is from Justin Peters, and we're talking about the mind of the Christian. And the title of today's message is, A Time is Coming. And the, the scripture reference is 2 Timothy 4. We'll get to that in a minute. But the quote from Justin Peters is this. The disengaged mind is the enemy of the Christian. It is the friend of the false teacher. The disengaged mind is the enemy of the Christian. Now, the disengaged mind looks like this. I go to church on Sunday, and I might bump into my Bible throughout the week. That's a disengaged mind for a believer. Because two hours on a Sunday, two hours. Jeez, pastor, how long are you speaking today? We haven't even been here an hour yet. Some of you just checked your watch. You know what it means when a minister looks at his watch? Nothing. (laughs) I have a timer here that tells me how long I've been speaking. I pay no attention to it whatsoever. You see, the less we know about something, the more we have to assume. The less you know about something, the more you have to assume. As a believer... You might be thinking, well, God is good, so of course he would be okay with... That's an assumption. That's an assumption, because we don't. if you don't know what God's word says on something, don't guess. That's a disengaged mind. That's the enemy of a believer. We should have an engaged mind. See, the problem with our assumptions is that if we don't make a point to find out the truth, our assumptions will eventually become... Our truth. Anyone ever run into people like that? Just because you think something is true does not mean that it is true. The longer you go without finding out the actual truth, the more difficult it is for you to accept the truth when it does show up. You ever met somebody who had a belief about God that they've held for so long when the truth hits them in the face, they completely deny that it's the truth. No, you're wrong. You're looking at that completely wrong. Nope, nope, that's not how it works. Nope, nope, absolutely not. Nope, nope. A common one that I run into periodically is that, no, 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 you're not saved by grace through faith. You're saved by believing in Jesus and going to the Catholic Church. That is a tenant of the Catholic faith. You not only have to believe in Jesus, you have to be part of the church. And when they're confronted with the fact that that's nowhere in in the Bible, this is a revelation for some people. Jesus wasn't Catholic. The Catholic church didn't exist. 
Jesus was the son of God and that was good enough for him. Should be good enough for me. They freak out. They get all bent out of shape. When people hear things like, no, you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. But they've been taught their whole life, you in order to be saved, you got to speak in tongues. And when they realize it's not in the Bible, they freak out. You're making that up. That can't be the truth. No, because because my pastors have told me my whole life, I'm sorry, your pastors were telling you, please hear this, your pastor was telling you something that's not in the Bible. And you know why you fell for it? Because you don't read your Bible. It is dangerous to be guided by our feelings, our emotions, and our assumptions. That is not what should be guiding the life of a Christian. What guides the life of a Christian is the word of God. And if you don't know the word of God, then you're being guided by your feelings, your emotions, and your assumptions. You're assuming that God agrees with you. A quote that I've heard several times recently is that God has to be at least as good as us or he's not good. (laughs) What a bunch of nonsense that is. Who says we're good? Funny, you know, you think that as you're flying down the road at 95 miles an hour, hoping that your radar detector works correctly. Now think about this. Today we live in a world where truth and fact are becoming more and more meaningless and more and more relative. And this is true in secular society as well as the church, folks. Now I want you to think about something. You know who you are. You know your motives. You know what you think. You know what you do. You know why you do it. But if I look at your life from the outside and I see what you're doing and I make a judgment on what your motives are and I never pay attention and I never come to you and ask the question, I am forming an opinion of you based on my assumption. And my assumption, if I wait long enough, becomes fact. Whether it's right or not, it is now truth that I will never let go of because I have decided that's who you are. Anyone want to be judged like that? No. So check this out. Just because something is true to you, this is, this is the way we're being taught today. This is the way your kids are being taught in school today. There's no absolute truth. There's your truth and my truth. But here's what people are being told. Just because it's true to you does not make it my truth. And that in order to be happy, I have to find my truth. And you should be forced to believe my truth as the truth, even though it's not true at all. Right? Now, you see, that only works for one person, doesn't it? Because what happens if the person who you're talking to, who you're sharing your truth to, doesn't agree with your truth? Whose truth is now truth? Your truth or their truth? And who should be forced to believe the other person's truth is truth? Your truth or their truth? Or maybe a third person comes in and now it's just all madness. Instead, why don't we go, I don't know, let's go do something crazy and search for the truth in the word of God. I want you to think about this. In the United States, the country that used to lead the world in science and technology, we were the envy of the world. 
in our education system, in our ability to produce, in the things that we made. There used to be something proud about the sticker on things that said, made in the USA. Now we look at that and we go, where in the USA? Yet in that nation, the nation that used to be the envy of the world, the most talked about subject in our political and social spectrums today is whether or not a person born a boy can magically turn into a girl, a cat, a giraffe, a bird, or a toaster, or a microwave, or whatever else they want to be, simply by deciding they are. What? I saw a video a couple of days ago of a lady explaining to people why the normal transgender pronouns should be removed. And I thought, well, this should be interesting. Because they didn't apply to her and her husband. Because her and her husband were birds. I'm not, I am so not making this up. Not making this up. They're birds. She, I think, was a cardinal and he was a robin. She's on YouTube trying to teach people how to use the proper bird pronouns for her and her husband. And she thinks we're the crazy ones for not adopting that viewpoint. Okay. Now think about this. Today, in New York State, your child, as early as five or six years old, can walk into the school and decide, without telling you, that today they're a cat. I'm not making this up because this has happened in our local areas. I'm going to leave the school district out of it. You can figure it out for yourself. Kids have come into the school deciding they're cats. The school will set up a litter box for that child to use throughout the day. And that belief is considered not only perfectly normal, it is protected and encouraged by the leadership of New York State and the State Board of Education. This is a protected, encouraged, they want kids to come out and, and, and make these decisions up to and including invasive, mutilating surgery to change their gender. There are people fighting in New York State right now to give children the ability to override a parent's decision. I'm talking about six, seven, eight years old to go in for life-altering gender reassignment surgery because that child has the capacity of making that decision for themselves. Yet, at the same time, that same government just last November made it so that that same child has to be at least 21 years old to buy a can of whipped cream because they can't be trusted to use it correctly. That's not a joke. It's not a joke. November 2021, the New York State legislation passed a law. You have to be 21 years old to buy whipped cream. But you don't have to be 21 to vote. 
I see a problem developing. I can't imagine why we are now the laughing stock of the world. And when we look at this stuff from the outside, it's easy to make fun of. It really is. But the problem is, the average Christian is completely disengaged from how that relates to their faith. Completely disengaged. Because we spend too much time making fun of it and not enough time trying to understand it. Isn't that the truth? It's easy, easy to point at someone who has walked away from the truth of God's standards and into something that's ludicrous, that is honestly a mental illness and has been ever since it was first known. It's called gender dysphoria or gender identity identity disorder. It is a diagnosed mental illness. But we can't say that anymore because that's mean. We'd rather put a litter box in middle school so the kids can go use it because that's way more sensible. But we don't spend time trying to engage with it, so we make fun of it from the outside. How do we as Christians expect to live and walk and serve God in a world that has become so intellectually, morally, and ethically bankrupt that I don't even know if there's a way to go back. How do we do that without becoming cynical and bitter? How do, we, how do we do that? I think the answer is really simple. You have to engage your mind and not be satisfied as an outside observer or an average player in your faith. But too many of us are. Too many of us are. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by this. I'm going to give you two scripture verses. I want to uh, hopefully explain to you what I mean by being an outside observer and being actually engaged. And this may stop you and go, wait, what? First verse is this. Oh, wait a minute. There it is. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. Everyone knows that, right? Does anyone ever use that scripture to encourage someone when they're down and let them know, look, hey, don't, don't worry about this. God has a plan for you. He has a future for you. And that future is, is awesome. That future is blessing. That future is healing. That future is financial provision. It's going to be so awesome that that's the future he has for you. Because Jeremiah 29, 11 says it. No, it doesn't. Because this isn't talking about an individual. This is talking about the nation of Israel. All you have to do is read the rest of it. But remember, I've said this before. People love Bible verses. They don't love scripture. Because you can take a Bible verse and cross-stitch it on a pillow and it's amazing. But scripture is something different. You actually have to get involved with scripture. And we take a verse like this and we apply it in a way it was never intended to be applied. Now, does God want good things for you? Sure. But is he going to guarantee everything you do is going to succeed beyond your wildest expectations? No. He has a plan for you. It's not necessarily health and wealth. It's going to be about serving him in a way you couldn't possibly understand until you get involved with it. How about this one? For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. 
Anyone, you know anyone who's, who's trying to start something, maybe they're trying to start a business or do whatever, and, and you say, you know what, absolutely, you should go for it, because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Hallelujah, Paul said it in Philippians, you can do it, God, you, you can so do it. And then you read the rest of it, and you're like, oh, that's, that's not what that meant. Well, does the strength of God allow you to do things? Of course it does. But is that what this passage is telling you? No. You know what this passage is telling you? While you're serving God, you can be rich and comfortable and poor and miserable and still serve God. You can be healthy and wealthy and you can be sick and downtrodden and still serve God. You can be broken, battered, bruised, cold, live a life of luxury or be happy you have I don't know, three pieces of toilet paper to use as a blanket. Either way, you as a Christian with the Spirit of God in you, you have the ability to find joy there. That's what that passage means. But we go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, you can. You can even be stoned to death by rocks because that happened to Paul. You can be shipwrecked a few times. That happened to Paul. You can be bitten by a poisonous snake and just pick it up, throw it in the fire, and everything will be fine because that happened to Paul. Oh, and guess what? You can make it to heaven by having your head cut off because that happened to Paul too. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It means that no matter what your situation, if you find your strength in Christ and in the word of God and in the teachings of his word, the world doesn't bother you. That's what that means. But what ends up happening is, to the disengaged mind, we give ourselves permission to casually and subtly misuse the word of God because we feel good doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We give ourselves permission to casually misuse the word of God because it makes us feel good. And when you give yourself permission to casually stray from the truth, that casual straying becomes way easier the further down the road you get. All you have to do is think about a diet. I am going to lose weight. I'm cutting out dairy. I'm cutting out bread. I'm cutting out sugar. Unless a soda comes with that Happy Meal. I'm cutting out... Dairy, wheat, and sugar, but it's really hot, and they have ice cream at Stewart's, and that ice cream contains dairy, wheat, and sugar. I just won't get a cone. I'm going to keep wheat out of it, but I'm going to be okay with the dairy and sugar this time. Casual compromise. I want one candy bar, casual compromise. Before you know it, <laughs> you're not on a diet. You're thinking about a diet. Our life and our faith and our our adherence to the word of God is exactly the same thing. It's the casual turning away that leads to significant issues. See, the danger here is when we allow ourselves to misrepresent the word of God, when we give ourselves permission to approach the word of God with a what does this passage mean to you mentality, we slowly move away from the truth of God and into, please pay attention to this, our truth about God. 
You move away from the truth of God and into your truth about God. Your truth about God will not save you. It's irrelevant. It means nothing if it is not grounded in the truth of God, which is only found in his word. Your opinion matters not. Stand before Jesus at the end of the days to give an account for your faith and say, I know what the word says, but I really feel like I was a good person. Uh, no. Jesus said it himself, I don't even know you. So in 2 Timothy 2, verses 15 through 18, it reads like this. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed. Listen to this. One who does not need to be ashamed and who who correctly explains the word of truth, which means there are people who don't. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. This kind of talk spreads like a cancer, as in the case of uh, Hymenaeus and and, and, uh, his friend Phil. They have left the path of truth. Like the way I did that, didn't you? They have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, listen, they have turned some people away from the faith. Avoiding worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. It's things like this. These are things that I've encountered in the last several months. You can get saved after you die. Worthless, foolish talk that leads people away from the truth. Because if I can get saved after I die, why in the world? Would I want to be a Christian today? How about this one? God is love, so as long as you're in love, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship you have. Straight, trans, LGBT, plus whatever alphabet soup. Doesn't matter. As long as as you stay committed to one another, God doesn't care. Worthless, foolish talk that leads people away from the truth of God. You understand what I'm saying? Worthless, foolish talk. We are to be ones who can be unashamed when we stand before God to give an account for the way we shared his truth. Now, there's another promise that we have to remember. And that's 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. And it says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, listen, who will someday judge the living and the dead when when he comes to set up his kingdom? Preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Now, this passage is directly speaking to leaders and teachers in the church, but it also does apply to each of us in our daily lives as we share the truth. We don't have the right to share our opinions unless they're founded in the word of God. This is both a warning and a promise. The promise is that this is going to happen. It's not a, this may happen. This is a promise. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the church. That's the thing we got to get our heads wrapped around. This is not a promise for secular society. This is a promise is what's going to happen in the church. 
Churches are going to be built that are going to be staffed by pastors who don't teach the word of God anymore. I'm going to show you a couple of them here in a minute. The second part of it is a warning not to let it happen to you. This is going to happen. There are going to be teachers out there, and they're going to be popular, and they are not going to teach you the truth. Don't let it happen to you. Don't fall for it. How do you get to a place where you don't fall for it? By having an engaged mind. If you don't know the truth, you'll never be able to spot a lie. The disengaged mind, remember, is the friend of the false teacher. Because the disengaged mind will believe anything that they think sounds good. The engaged mind is the one that's hard to fool. We engage our mind and we live our lives according to the teachings of the word of God. Paul's warning here is to those who take up the name Christian. They take up the name Christian. And you think about this, what he's telling us is that a time will come when the Christian will care more about their credit score than the gospel message. We'll spend years building up our good credit score and no time developing our understanding of the truth of God's word and the gospel message. A day will come when we will be more Concerned about cancel culture than kingdom culture. You hear this quite often. I listen to different messages and different preachers online, and you'll hear them come up to a point where you know the word that's about to come out of their mouth, and it doesn't. They turn and go in a different way because they don't want to say it out loud. They don't want to work, they don't want to worry about being ridiculed about being looked down on for saying things like the LGBT community is not, has no Christians in it. No, you can't be saved and gay. No, you can't be saved and trans. There's a reason for that. Same reason why you can't be saved and a murderer or saved and a thief. You cannot openly embrace sin and then try to equally openly embrace salvation. They don't walk hand in hand. You can't compromise on those truths. You cannot say, I am going to welcome this sin into my life and then turn around and say, but I also want the redemptive power of God. It doesn't work. God saves the repentant sinner, not the willful sinner. But we can't be afraid of that. You see, because when you hide the truth, because you won't say it, you don't have to be a jerk about it. But just stand for the truth. You know, just refuse to believe the lie. You don't have to be mean or obnoxious about it. Just refuse to believe it. But we're afraid of the cancel culture. A day is also going to come when churches will be staffed with pastors who deny the authority of Scripture and even some churches that will have unbelievers in the pulpit. There's three examples right there. I've said this publicly a hundred times, and I have, I have people who are close to me who have met these people. But I'll say this really carefully, but really plainly. Bill Johnson is not a Christian. If you read his books, if you listen to his message, he is not a gospel-preaching minister. He is a mystic. 
He is a mystic using the Christian language to promote that type of, I'm just going to say, an offshoot of pagan theology. I come from a witchcraft background. I can recognize it. And you can see it in his writings. He denies that salvation is the, was, was what Jesus came for. In one of his own writings, salvation was not the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came so that you could have power in your life. That's his own words. Their focal point in their, in their teaching is that you have to be willing to go beyond the scripture. The scripture is just the beginning. One of the things they say in their church is it's not the Father, it's not the Father Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible's just guidelines. That is not the confession of a Christian. I get ridiculed for it. Lost a lot of friends because of it. Andy Stanley, if I haven't proven him to be a false teacher and a heretic with the amount of time that I've spent bringing his teachings forward, I don't even know what to do. He has outright denied the authority of Scripture. He has outright denied that you even, as a Christian, he even has a series of teachings telling you that you need to disconnect yourself from the Old Testament because it doesn't have anything to do with you. He tells his congregation the Ten Commandments are not about them. People still go to that church. You want to know why? They're disengaged Christians. They don't know that they wouldn't know the truth if it ran into them. For them, Christianity is a social club. When we buy these guys' books, when we listen to their music, when we promote their ideology, we are fueling the fire of false teachings. That's why we don't sing any Bethel songs in this church. I will not support them in any way. I won't support Andy, Andy Stanley or his church or their music or in any way because of what they do. I can't do it. I will not promote false teachings. I would rather sing hymns from the 1700s only. Some of you are like, thank God. We'll find a way to spice them up, I'm telling you. See, the central question we have to deal with is really simple. How do these people get into these places of influence? How do they even get there? They get there because the people follow them don't know, they either don't know any better or they're too afraid to speak up. That's what it is. There is an epidemic of ignorance and willful ignorance in the modern day church and it's not going to get fixed on two hours, coming to church two hours on a Sunday. It's going to get fixed when your faith takes the front seat in your life when you're willing to make room for it, when you're willing to engage your mind, your understanding, your knowledge, when you're willing to grow beyond casual observance of Christianity, that's when it gets fixed. I'm not encouraging you to go out in the world and be an obnoxious Bible thumper because I don't think that works. This does not mean that you stop living. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't go places. It doesn't mean you give up all your friends. What it means is you'd be willing to make room for the gospel message. That's what it means. God has given you forgiveness and eternal life, and he deserves more than the leftovers of your week.